0: Right. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, May 7th. Today, back in the day on May 7th, 1912, Columbia University approved plans for awarding the Pulitzer Prize in several categories after it was established by Joseph Pulitzer. A retired newspaper publisher, Joseph Pulitzer left money in his will to Columbia to create a school of journalism and establish the yearly prizes, which are given in the form of four awards for journalism, four awards for letters and drama, one award for education, and four awards of traveling scholarships. The first Pulitzer Prizes were given in 1917. And today, back in the day on May 7, 1934, the Medford-based Mail Tribune became the first newspaper in Oregon to win a Pulitzer Prize. Their Pulitzer was awarded for, quote, the most disinterested and meritorious public service rendered by any American newspaper during the year 1933. In that year, the Mail Tribune campaigned against unscrupulous politicians in Jackson County, Oregon. The morning Oregonian, the paper's closest rival, publicly praised its coverage of the political events as courageous and thoughtful in a time of local turmoil. On today's episode, we'll start with your Quick 6 News Headlines, and we have an interview with Hannah Martzbach, journalist from Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Multnomah County DA, Mike Schmidt, has hired a private attorney to investigate the death of Israel Barry. Barry was shot and killed by Gresham police officer James Doyle on May 31, 2020. On that day, officers reportedly responded to a 911 call in Southeast Portland at around 9:30 p.m. They found Barry honking his horn and driving up and down the 2400 block of Kelly Street. Officers then blocked the road so Barry was unable to continue driving, at which point Doyle shot him while he was still in his car. Barry was pronounced dead at the scene. Very few details surrounding his death have been made public. It is not known if Barry had a weapon on him at the time or why Doyle shot him after police had already cornered him. Doyle has reportedly been on paid administrative leave since the shooting. Now, Multnomah County DA Mike Schmidt has hired private attorney Samuel Kaufman to serve as a co-lead prosecutor. According to Schmidt, quote, these are the most critical cases for our community and require an outside set of eyes to challenge potential bias. Oregon police officers have faced considerable scrutiny in recent years for claims of excessive use of force. In fact, the Department of Justice has been investigating Portland police for unconstitutional behavior since 2012. Schmidt acknowledged that skepticism towards the internal handlings of police shootings were fair and said that prosecutors who work alongside officers on a daily basis, quote, tend to see things the same way. Still, Dan Handelman, founder of Portland Cop Watch, said the success of appointing an outside prosecutor like Kaufman will be revealed through jury transcripts. Handelman, whose organization promotes police accountability, said county prosecutors tend to ask purposefully leading questions that give officers the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes, he said, county prosecutors will blatantly avoid, quote, obvious questions that they don't ask officers. For Schmidt, appointing an outside attorney is the first step in delivering the exact kind of accountability people like Handelman want. He says Kaufman and other prosecutors will present Barry's case to a grand jury next month. And now your daily dose of data. The Oregon Health Authority reported 763 new and presumptive coronavirus cases yesterday. That brings the total number of cases in the state to 189,162. There were also five new COVID-related deaths yesterday. The death toll Is now up to 2,514. The city's attorney's office has refused to release an audit of the Office of Community and Civic Life, and former employees are furious. For years, staff at the Office of Community and Civic Life have reported alarming allegations of mismanagement. Many of them said they'd felt bullied, and some reportedly left staff meetings in tears. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty met with employees in January and was stunned by what she heard. According to Hardesty, quote, the general theme was intimidation. They're just not treated like the professional adults that they should be treated like. After countless complaints and at least four official reports to HR, Margie Solinger, Ombudsman for the Bureau of Human Resources and City, began an audit. The audit was performed by business management consultant Aseta. A-S-C-E-T-A. According to the official report, the audit was supposed to investigate allegations of harassment, retaliation, questionable hiring practices, and the high rate of turnover, among other issues. The report also stated that complaints came from, quote, Caucasians and people of color, employees with long seniority, as well as relatively new employees. But now, the city attorney's office is denying Oregonians the right to access the results of the audit. According to the office, Aceta was retained to conduct an audit as well as to offer legal advice. The office now says disclosing the results of the audit would violate attorney-client privilege. But numerous news outlets and former employees challenged that and said Aceta was only meant to perform the audit, not offer legal counsel. According to OPB reporter Rebecca Ellis, quote, None of these statements discuss litigation, liability, or any legal matters. Commissioner Hardesty intends to use the report for business purposes only. The district attorney is now involved in the case, but has not yet announced when they will issue a ruling. A former Linfield student has accused a trustee of inappropriate behavior. On May 3, 2019, a recent Linfield graduate was approached at a senior dinner by a trustee named David Hogberg. According to the student, Hogberg referred to her and her friends as beautiful young women. She also said he hugged, squeezed, and winked at her. Although the student had no desire to publicly report Hogberg's behavior initially, she said that she'd changed her mind after hearing another student had filed a lawsuit against a different trustee for sexual abuse. The Linfield graduate described these allegations as part of, quote, a larger culture at Linfield, most present within the board of trustees, in which individuals who hold power are able to utilize it in order to obtain what they want. A total of four trustees have been accused of inappropriate behavior and sexual misconduct, Last year, a trustee named David Jubb was formally charged with sexually abusing four students, while well, two other trustees, one of whom is, is University President Miles K. Davis, were accused by a staff member of inappropriate touching. And though some faculty members have tried to fight back against the toxic environment, they've been swiftly punished for doing so, as is the case with former Linfield professor Daniel Pollock Pilsner who had repeatedly urged the university to put better guidelines in place related to student-trustee relationships. He also reported the incident with Hogberg to university administration, but then Linfield failed to investigate the claim. Pollock-Pelsner was fired without notice earlier this year for what Linfield classified as insubordination. One of Portland's most famous food cart pods will return to a new location. In 2019, Portlanders lost one of their staple restaurant stops at Southwest 10th and Alder. The pod, which boasted dozens of carts, was nestled in the heart of downtown and was visited by hundreds of locals and tourists on a daily basis. But two years ago, the pod was removed after plans for the building of a Ritz-Carlton hotel went into effect. Now the pod has finally reassembled and will occupy an area at the south end, of the North Park blocks. According to Keith Jones, director of Friends of Green Loop, quote, the carts have been waiting for a long time for this to happen. The area will fit 22 carts and will act as a pilot program. Mayor Ted Wheeler, who set aside funds for the rebuilding of the pod, said cart owners could see the money as soon as July 1st. And if they do, cart owners say they're hoping to officially open by July 4th. The goal is to position carts back into a fairly central and well-trafficked area of Portland. Some cart owners found new locations after they were moved from Southwest 10th and Alder. But carts like Number 1 Bento, which relocated to Southwest 6th and Columbia, say they're making a fraction of what they previously earned the North Park Blocks are in a stunning area of Portland, which sit right between Old Town, the Pearl District, and downtown, but they're relatively unused and ignored. Jane Kim, co-owner of the number 1 Bento, hopes that moving the pod to the Park Blocks will breathe new life into the area. According to Kim, quote, we're going to do whatever we can to make this a wonderful place for food carts pilot program will give the pod a three-year permit. And if it is successful, the program may expand to other parts of Portland. And some good news. Professional baseball could finally come to Oregon. Although Oregon boasts two major league sports teams and has found immense success with both, Oregon's baseball fans have struggled for some time to bring a major league baseball team here. Now, two Oregonians, Lynn Lashbrook and Jeffrey Dubois, are working to change that, and they may have found their ideal site for a stadium in Gresham. According to Du Bois, Gresham has been listed as a possible stadium locale for years. He said his conversations with Lashbrook, quote, always began with, why not Gresham? We would make a list of all the reasons it wouldn't work, and it was always so short. A MLB stadium in Gresham would bring countless job opportunities to the area, both at the stadium and for the surrounding businesses. But Lashbrook and Dubois say they've heard criticism from others who are disappointed that the stadium wouldn't be in West Portland, where the other two major league sports teams are located. In response, Lashbrook said he and Dubois weren't necessarily set against Portland, but that they wanted to hear what community members thought before settling on a location. Though Lashbrook did admit that many Portlanders have a, quote, built-in bias that a stadium has to be in downtown. Lashbrook also noted that the national perception of Portland is very different from how Portlanders view their own city. Over the past year, many Americans have been fed a narrative that Portland is chaotic and unruly, as conservative media has attempted to paint a negative image of Portland's social justice demonstrations. In choosing Gresham as the MLB stadium location, Lashbrook believes Oregon can bypass that press, saying quote what is going on in downtown portland doesn't reflect what is happening in gresham and that's today's quick six local rundown x-ray next up we have hannah mersbach from street roots with an update on medford's camping laws and why they are getting national attention
1: the city of medford in southern oregon was the subject of national outcries last week after strengthening anti-camping laws. These make it harder for homeless people to find a place to sleep at night. Here to tell us more is Hannah Merzbach, a reporter from Street Roots. Hannah, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Pretty good. Uh, Tell us about these new changes to Medford's camping laws.
2: Right. So there previously was an ordinance in Medford that it pretty broadly banned camping anywhere throughout the city. And that even included, if you're camping, with, say just a sleeping bag, no tent, um, even though this is all loosely enforced. So recently, Medford took a look at this ordinance um, and revised it. They revised it so that it one bans camping, lying, sleeping with any bedding material on the Bear Creek Greenway, which has kind of been a subject for controversy in Medford. So they banned all camping on the Greenway during fire season from May 1st to September 30th. Um, they also upheld the tent tent ban anywhere on public property. Um, so now you can say, sleep with a sleeping bag in select places, but you cannot sleep with a tent. Um, they also, the penalty for tent camping and sleeping in prohibited places rose from a violation to a crime. So now you could technically get a Class C misdemeanor. That's a maximum of 30 days in jail or a $500 fine in Medford um, and mm. supporters and police say um, it's unlikely people will typically um, get those max um, that, that max fine or okay. days in jail they're saying they're taking a more educational approach trying to provide people with services um, but but it's still a possibility so, um, in short, this, this ordinance did open up some places where people can sleep. You can sleep in a park with a tent. If you, if you move within 24 hours, you can sleep on a sidewalk with a sleeping bag if you leave uh, three feet next to you for people to pass by. Um, but it, it did restrict a lot, and it is going to result in a lot more enforcement, especially on this Bear Creek Greenway, where a lot of the homeless population in Medford has lived for years.
1: So what, I, I, I think I know part of your answer, but what is driving this decision to increase penalties for camping in Medford?
2: Right. So a lot of this came out of a huge concern about fire danger. And a lot of this was sparked by last year. The Alameda Fire really tore through the area, destroyed about 2,500 homes just south of Medford mm-hmm. um, in Talent and Phoenix. Um, and it did burn through the Bear Creek Greenway in those parts. The Greenway, really, it's this 20-mile paved trail. It runs from Ashland through Talent Phoenix, Medford, all the way to Central Point. Um, And hundreds of people camp on the Greenway in Medford since it hasn't burned there yet. Um, So, I mean, there's really, and in Medford, according to the last 2020 point in time count, there were about um, over 700 people living homeless in, in Medford um, in Jackson County, the majority of which are in Medford. And I mean, this might not sound like a lot if you live in Portland, but proportionately speaking, this is more, um, this is a higher rate of homeless than we see in Multnomah County. There's this really severe lack wow. of housing. Um, the fires really burned up a lot of the affordable housing in the area drove up, um, demand for housing. Um, so the bottom line is there there has been this huge concern about fires, which you know it is valid. There is huge fire risk on the Greenway, um, but there is also this huge homeless population that's living unsheltered.
1: So who who are the 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 players in this? Who's supporting this change, and are there groups uh, that are opposing this change?
2: Right, yeah, so there's a lot of people on both sides. The city seems pretty split. Um, So in terms of who supports, one, we've got the city council. They almost unanimously supported making these revisions to the ordinance. Um, They were really going off of trying to prevent fire danger and promote public safety. Um, They're really relying on local nonprofits like Rogue Retreat. They provide uh, shelter um, transitional housing, urban campground—they're um, really relying on these nonprofits to be providing people beds. Um, and they say they want this ordinance could be a way to push people to actually take advantage of those services. Even though, um, if all these people are displaced from the Greenway, there's not going to be enough beds um, for them to go to. Um, Secondly, we had this huge citizen group coming out in support of the ordinance called the Greenway Recovery Project, this Facebook page um, that they gathered about uh, 4,300 letters in support of the ordinance from citizens. They're really kind of deeming the Greenway a blight for Southern Oregon, saying they're really trying to promote safety, the environment. Um, and this group was run by this interesting character, Ryan Mallory. He's kind of this marketing pro in the area. He runs several groups. Um, they're called Scanner Groups. They're these Facebook pages in southern Oregon, northern California, that almost seem to promote vigilantism. Um, they're kind of these crime networks, um, That kind of these citizen-run networks. Wow. Um, so in Jackson County, for example, the Scanner Group has... Um, over 60,000 members. And that's a lot for a county that has over, um, just over uh, 220,000 people, you know. Um, and he had kind of said, just talking about this ordinance, they he argues it's not it's not anti- homeless, but he also thinks that, you know, if, if people are, say, what he calls the worst offenders, um, jail could maybe be a good detox for people. Um, and he also admitted that um, this could serve, this ordinance could serve as one motivation for the county to expand their jail, which is something they've been working towards. Um,
1: Fascinating.
2: Yeah, so, <laughs> so, those are the people supporting this. Um, and then in opposition, we've got these huge community action networks really coming out. Um, a lot of the um, kind of activist groups formed this Housing Justice Alliance Um, which included groups like Rogue Action Center, the CU Rising Tide, Um, they gained over like 3,000 signatures on a petition opposing the ordinance and tons of testimonies from unhoused folks um, who were largely opposed to this ordinance. Um, They say that Medford services, though Medford does have a lot of services in the area compared to a lot of communities, um, they say Medford services don't work for them. They say they're one size fits all. They've tried them. They've ended up back on the Greenway. Um, and these groups really take issue with the criminalization approach. Um, and they also say that Medford needs to take a look at its services and they need to come up with a more diverse options of so- options of services. Um, than they currently have, um, these groups think the city is using fires to possibly push a larger agenda like building a larger jail um yeah. so those are really the people in support opposed um super contentious contentious issue
1: yeah so uh this is andy and julia we're speaking with uh hannah mersbach uh from street roots about uh, uh new law cri- essentially criminalizing homelessness in in medford uh the the street roots reporting on what's going on in uh Southern Oregon has been really informative so thank you for this so uh, uh, is is this change legal can they can, can they do this <laughs> well
2: that's a good question that's the one everyone's asking um, so I mean to start it really did spark this national outcry ahead of the ordinance being passed the National homelessness Law Center and the Civil Liberties Law Center both sent Medcine Medford letters um, asking them to not pass this lo- this ordinance because um, they saw it as violating case law about homelessness. Um, so we've got um, the Martin v. Boise case, Blake versus Grant Pass. Grant Pass is just neighboring
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: Medford, and these are cases that said it's unconstitutional unconstitutional to punish people for sleeping outside. When there aren't enough shelter beds, and they think this could violate um, those laws, um, one Oregon House Bill, House Bill 3115, uh, that's on the road to getting passed, will require Oregon cities and counties to get up to code with this case law on camping. Um, but but Medford says that they are already following this case law. You know, cities, counties, they do have the ability to re- restrict place and manner in which people can camp um that was provided for in the martin v boise blake versus grant's past cases um and they say they're doing just that i mean there are some places where people can camp um they say that come that before the winter they're going to um publish policy on more places people can camp with a tent um but but they're not doing that before May 1st. So they think they're in line with this. Um, observers are waiting to see how it actually is enforced. Um, how that, mm-hmm. um, how those fines, how that jail time is used in practice. Um, and people really do argue there's not sufficient housing. There's not enough beds for people. Um, and they argue that these sweeps could cause greater COVID spreads. I mean, the CDC still maintains the, um, the entities should not be sweeping camps because it could um, create more COVID risk. Um, even one Medford lawyer is already uh, taking up a class action lawsuit against the city for these camping or- ordinances. Um, but other than that, uh, I guess we're still waiting to see if this is legal.
1: So, uh, unfortunately, we need to, to wrap things up. How, how can listeners find out more or help out Medford's uh, houseless community?
2: Uh, right. Yeah, I would take a look at, I mean, kind of with the people supporting this, they have the Medford has this livability team that's part of the police. They're the ones charged with, um, dispersing resources to people. Um, you could give them a look at uh, the Medford police's website. Um, there's also road retreat. They're the ones providing these kinds of services. Um, And then other than that, um, you can look up groups like Rogue Action Center, SISC, Rising Tide, that are really leading um, the opposition against this ordinance.
1: Thank you. And, of course, folks can uh, get a copy of Street Roots, which will help to support uh, further reporting on this. Uh, Hannah Mersbach from Street Roots, thank you so much uh, for your work on this issue and for uh, uh, talking with us this morning.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks to Hannah for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And a special thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy, supporting editors and writers John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Brian Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, and Sam Smargiazzi. Thanks for original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamphlet Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, and our news partners, Portland Mercury, Street Roots, Bike Portland, and Eater Portland. And thank you, Democracy X-Ray.